Adrian, welcome to Waterstones. It's a pleasure to be here. I don't want to do the world's unfunniest interview with a comedian, but I found Berserker a very moving read, actually. I found it mm. very emotional for all sorts of reasons, which hopefully we'll touch upon. Yeah. Um, I wanted to start, if you don't mind, with your childhood, because you had a, quite an unconventional childhood because of your father's job. Yeah. So he was a teacher within the armed forces. My dad was a teacher, and uh, he taught for several different wings of the armed forces. And for, I think, the British, British aid when we moved to Uganda. So we, we lived in Cyprus, Bahrain, in Uganda. Yeah. And he was always teaching, and someone else was always paying him. Um, he was never, never employed directly by the school, as it were. Yeah. So that meant you would have been, you know, moving from place to place, from school to school. Yeah. I mean, was that literally un unsettling? Did it mean that it's hard to put down? I, I didn't stay in one school for longer than a year until I went to boarding school, mm. age 12. Boarding school is the big change in, in this book. Um, tell me a little bit about that, because it's interesting for all sorts of reasons. Boarding schools are interesting yeah. weird places, um, but also you were the only child. Yes, it was a very odd decision. Um, I, my, I've got an older sister and two younger brothers, and, uh, and I think a bit of misogyny was creeping in, and my dad thought, you know, girls aren't worth educating um, and I think I was the great hope of the family although I'd, I'd already failed my 11 plus so I don't know why they thought I was bright um, so we suddenly pitched up in Uganda and I was immediately sent away again and um, no one's ever given me a satisfactory uh, explanation of why why me and, and why not my brothers and why not my mm. sister I've in this course of the book, I, I sort of come to a conclusion. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I, I got a lot more comfortable with myself when I finally came up with it, which, which is that it, perhaps he just didn't really like me, my dad, you know. It, it's, it can happen, can't it? Yeah. Um, maybe maybe that it was just antipathy, you know. Um, but it, it, was, it was a massive change, because was, I was in Uganda at the time when... Uh, Idi Amin came into power, so yeah. it, everything sort of got thrown up in the air and uh, the postal service stopped. And I was only going home twice a year anyway, but then I didn't get any letters for a long time. Yeah. So I sort of, I, I learnt, I, I sort of learnt an idea that I was on my own at about the age of 13. Yeah. Um, which is quite odd. And made, made me an odd human being, I have to say. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I think I'm more regular these days. Yeah. But uh, even when I pitched up at university, I was still socially very, I think, feral yeah. is the word. Um, in, incapable of talking to the female gender. Um, and pretty bad at talking to men as well, you know. <laughs> I was just, just kind of wild-eyed. I, 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 I sort of replaced the idea of affection and being loved with a search for adrenaline. Right. And um, that makes you quite a, quite hard work, yeah. which is why the book's called Berserker. Yeah. Because I, I, I sort of became a berserker. Yeah. Uh, and it, so that sort of permeated my entire career, really, especially the early days, because all my early characters are, are mad. Absolutely mad. Yeah. That thing of, it's really interesting, you're saying about the, the, when the postal service sort of broke down in Uganda, you described this sort of moment when you were at school where the letters weren't coming. You yeah. were writing, but you weren't getting replies. Yeah. And you had sort of two thoughts, which is either, you know, maybe they're dead. Maybe my yeah. parents have been killed. And then this sort of other realisation, 
which was, you said, or, or maybe they just don't like me. Right? <laughs> which is just a well, terribly sad thought for a boy to have at the age yeah. of... Well, the, the other kind of um, bonus <laughs> was that because I was getting their letters back, and, and writing letters to them was compulsory. Yeah. There was a compulsory letting, letter writing hour on Sunday, so you were made to fill in your letter and post it off. Yeah. Um, I just started inventing who I was. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, about how brilliant I was at things, you know, how I perhaps needed a, a raise in my pocket money. Yeah. Um, not for cigarettes, obviously, <laughs> but for fruit. Because <laughs> they didn't serve enough fruit at yeah. school. <laughs> I say it didn't work, but there you go. God, that's so... Because as you say, that thing in a boarding school... So I was sent away to school as well, yeah. and there's this odd thing, which is that despite the fact that you're there with your peers all the time, you can, of course, feel incredibly lonely because you feel like you've been sort of abandoned by your family. Yeah. And sometimes relationships you make with friends there can be amazing, but you describe at the end of that school that you all kind of went your separate ways. We, there was we, actually no friendship there. We left there. on a day... And no one saw each other for about 15 years. Yeah. Uh, or is it longer than that? No, it's, it's, it's 20 odd years. About 20 odd years later, uh, Friends Reunited came about. Of course. And two or three of us got in touch. I had a, I had a band at school and the members of the band got in touch. Yeah. Sure, we get the band back together again. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, and it, as, when we did this little get-together... We talked about the fact that we'd never, never even said goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> the, the guy who used to play guitar in the band told me that uh, when he was leaving, his dad, they were packing his stuff in the car, and his dad said, well, aren't you going to go and say goodbye to your mates? Yeah. Brackets that you've lived with for the past <laughs> 10 years and shared a room with. Yeah. And he just looked at the school and said, nah. <laughs> and that's when we realised that all those relationships were just... Uh, things that were made up to, to to prevent you getting hurt. Yeah, you know they were they were relationships of convenience. Um, we were all we were all similarly damaged. Yeah. I was pleased when I found that out because for a long time I struggled with the idea that I was the only one that was a, as I call it, or as my mum calls it, a nutter. <laughs> you know, um, and. Uh, and I, I was glad to find that they were similarly damaged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hooray! Yeah, I'm not the only one. It wasn't me. It's not something to do with my personal psyche. Yeah. They were hurting everyone. And that thing, you, you sort of, that, as you said, when you were writing the letters to your parents that you weren't going to reply to, you could sort of reinvent yourself and, as you say, pretend that you're happy and that everything's going really, really well. Yeah. And you talk about how the sort of boarding school environment does teach you to repress any emotion. You yeah. can't show that you're upset or sad or lonely, no. otherwise you'd get mocked by your friends, yeah, presumably. absolutely. And that, presumably, takes a while to overcome. As you get into your adult life, you talk yeah. about going to uni and being sort of wild-eyed and yeah. a berserker. Um, your meeting with, with Rick is described with, with great simplicity, actually, in the book. Um, you met, I think it was, in, was it in your second year that you met him um, properly? We sort of knew, it. we were in the same year, same department. It was yeah. a very small department, so we knew each other. But we didn't really connect until the second year. You described him as being beautiful and uncomplicated, which yeah. I thought was really interesting. It, beautiful, but with very greasy hair, you just yeah. said. Yeah. <laughs> what what was it about? He was very young. <laughs> he was the youngest in the year. He was, he was the baby. 
What was it about him, do you think, that makes you use those words, beautiful and uncomplicated? It's a kind of analysis in, with, with, with the benefit of hindsight, really. Because mm. uh, he was very popular with the ladies and, um, and with everyone. He was, he, was, he was the Jack the Lad, mm. you know, he was, he was fun. Mm. Uh, and never, never had an edge, never was always quite kind and mm. uh, funny and just wanted everything to go well and wanted everyone, wanted everyone to have a good time. Yeah. Wanted everyone to have as good a time as he was having. Yeah. You know, um, and that, that sort of, I mean, I think he probably had nice cheekbones or something as well, but, you know, but I, I do think beauty shines in, from your soul rather than, than, than external appearance. Generally, yeah. there's, there's a few exceptions, obviously, in the world, but yeah. you, you, you can get very beautiful people that aren't conventional beauties, and, and he was one of those. You formed a, a great sort of duo whilst you were at university and, and sort of immediately afterwards, and the early days of that, I suppose, alternative comedy scene, yeah. uh, you, it's fascinating to read about the form, formation of the um, comic strip club and things yeah. like that. Um, you met two other forces brats, as you described them, yeah. Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders. I yeah. didn't realise that they were both, like you, had yeah, sort of the, had that. Yeah, their, their dads were both in the RAF, and we discovered that we'd all been in Cyprus. In at the, We don't know if we'd met each other, Yeah, uh, but we were all there in 1963. That's extraordinary. Um, so there's, there's a possibility that we might have. Yeah. And Dawn and Jennifer have an even stranger story, which is that... Um, uh, because everyone kept moving schools. I mean, I don't know why the forces never stay in one place. Yeah. But when, when I was in Cyprus, we went to six different uh, bases in, in the space of six years. Yeah. You know, so we kept moving, and so did Dawn and Jennifer. And, and Dawn moved schools, and Jennifer moved into the school Dawn had just left and became best friends with Dawn's previous best friend. These are the kind of weird circles that happen. But we, 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 we sort of bonded over our, our forces stuff because we understood... Camp life and yeah. naffies and you know spam and and a kind of uh, lack of resources <laughs> <laughs> and a lack of permanence. Yeah. You know, transience is a big part of of all three of our lives. And is there? It's hard not to draw any kind of connection between the fact that you had this sort of similar upbringing and gone into comedy yeah. or found uh, a way of sort of you know using comedy to at least deal with stuff. Have you ever thought about why that might be? Why, why that might have led you all to do comedy? It's bizarre because of, of the comic strip, if you include um, Peter Nigel as well, Peter Rich and Nigel Planer and Rick, uh, only Peter is a first child, the rest of us are second children. Ah. And I think, I think, I think second children get, uh, especially in a family that goes on to have more, yeah. and they, uh, they, they get discounted because all the all the attention goes on the first one, and then second one, you just let them yeah. bounce along, and then a baby comes along. No, oh, little baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So the second one is kind of left to fend for themselves and uh, and rub along, and I think that that creates a certain I don't stupidly empirical evidence. Uh, you know, I wouldn't wouldn't stand any scientific test. Well, I'm a weird believer in birth order. I'm, oh, yeah. I, I laugh at star signs and things like that, but when I've yeah. had the sort of birth order thing described to me, I'm like, that's that makes complete sense to me. Yeah. And as a, as a parent myself, you can see those patterns. As you say, first child, you're anxious and worried and you yeah. sort of stare at them 24 hours a day. Second child, you're like, it'll be fine. Put yeah. it in a drawer. Um, and well, it's, are, it's, oh. the, it's, the, it's the two uh, kind of basic 
opposing philosophies about what happens nurture and nature-wise. Mm. Um, Aristotle, is it Aristotle or Sophocles says, give me a child at the age of seven, I'll show you the man. Mm. And Carl Jung says, I am what I choose to become. Mm. And then, then, depending on which you believe, you know, sometimes I believe them both at the same time. <laughs> both can be true. Yeah. Um, when I was uh, a kid, um, probably about 10, I think, maybe a bit younger. I remember when we used to go and visit my uncle and aunt, they had, we'd be left to play around, and we found the TV cupboard, which was filled with VHS cassettes. Yeah. And on some of those VHS cassettes were episodes of The Young Ones, mm. which we stuck in and we watched, knowing that we shouldn't be watching it because it was clearly not meant for little children. So that sort of sweet transgression every time. It was on before the, on nine o'clock. Yeah. Is that after the watershed or not? I'm not I sure. Don't, before, before now would be before the watershed. It wasn't shed. actually very rude, you know. No, but there were no, there were no rude words in it. But no, but maybe no. not for cartoon sort of, violence. Yeah, cartoon violence. You know, people but are it, saying ploppy pants. Yeah. It's not, it's not exactly kind of. It's very exciting for a nine-year-old. Sophisticated adult. No, <laughs> but there was the music and that kind of. Yeah. I suppose there was politics in there as well. All sorts of mad yeah. stuff. Um, I know that for you, of course, The Young Ones is, as you say in the book, was just 14 weeks of your yeah. life, a very sort of short period of time. Uh, you've spent more time talking about it than you ever did filming it. Yeah. But it, for, I suppose for a lot of people, it is this sort of very important uh, comedy yeah. thing. And I suppose another important step with I your I think I have a kind of natural uh, impulse to, to put it in a drawer and shut, it, shut the drawer mm. because it's so big. Yeah, it's such a big thing. Um, I mean, I I watched one in order. I I never watch it. Right. I don't watch anything I've done, except at the time it comes out. Yeah. Because um, I think that's a kind of sad thing to do. Sitting <laughs> there watching former glories. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so generally, I I, I, I I don't pay any attention to it because it is so huge mm. that it's kind of overwhelming. So the the way to get a pass that is, is not to acknowledge that it even happened <laughs> which is impossible obviously yeah. but you know and then you moved on obviously with Rick um, with the creation of Bottom as a phenomenon I'll call it yeah. um, hugely important again for lots of people um, that, and obviously very important for your relationship with, with Rick can you tell me a bit about the writing of it because I'm really intrigued by that because of something you say later in the book which is to yeah. do with you naturally writing more of his stuff and yeah. him naturally writing more of your stuff. Yeah. We had a, we, it took us ages to work out how to write. So all our early stuff uh, at uni and um, on the sort of club circuit, as it were, um, was all kind of improvised and then kind of worked up in performance. Uh, writing for telly was always very different. We, we wrote, um, in the sort of mid-80s, we wrote a series of sketches, I think 10 sketches for um, Friday Live or Saturday Live, one of those programmes, doing The Dangerous Brothers. Mm. And we found it a very tortuous experience. Because we'd start off writing, right, what's, what's exciting? Uh, explosion. Uh, there is a big explosion. Well, what should we write next? What's better than a big explosion? A bigger explosion. <laughs> and then, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd run out of superlatives halfway down the page and we found it... I mean, I... I, I, I I remember them very fondly. I think I think they're sort of like live-action Roadrunner cartoons. Mm. Um, so when we finished that, we we kind of stopped working together for a bit, and uh, we both did a lot of Ben Elton's work. Yeah, 
So he was doing bits of Blackadder and I was doing, and we did Filthy Rich and Catflap together and something called Happy Families that Ben wrote. And we were learning with Ben in the room about how he wrote. And mm. it became obvious that the big explosion isn't the important thing. <laughs> the important thing is characters. Yeah. Uh, so write characters first and then see if they even get the characters to an explosion. You know, uh, so we learned this kind of, that lesson. And then we, we developed, it was the most joyful time in my life, uh, a kind of system of, we turn up at 10 o'clock, we spend 45 minutes an hour just talking about the world, mm. what had been on Newsnight, you know, the bus journey, the, you know, supermarket arguments, uh, all that sort of stuff. And then as we were doing all that, eventually a, a little nub would come, a little nub of an idea. So, you know, they were, what if they went on holiday to Wales, you know, and uh, when, when did you go to Wales? What happened when you were in Wales? You know, we, we, did kind of, we kind of sort of attach it that way and then have a lovely couple of hours putting stuff in the larder, as we called it. So we just kind of get an idea like Wales or cars or, you know, and then you write all the kind of things that, that might be funny about them being in a car. Mm. And eventually, you'd, out of, you know, that much material, you'd, you'd get this much good stuff, and it'd go in. Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was delightful and very funny. Yeah. We were just trying to make each other laugh. It was, we were just sitting in a room trying to make each other laugh, and someone was paying us. <laughs> was, Perfect. Perfect yeah, job. It was a lovely job. <laughs> yeah. um, you're quite honest about, I suppose, the difference between you and Rick when it comes to performing, which ha happened with the young ones. Obviously, there's huge fame that came after that, yeah. um, which he loved and you hate it. You yeah, I've, I've always found um, notoriety uh, uncomfortable and he, he, he reveled in it. Uh, it's not that there's no judgment in that. Mm. He, he, he just did and I didn't and uh, it made us different people and because we were together so often, especially when we were touring Bottom and stuff and you'd end up for a week in Leeds or Blackpool or something like that, you know, you'd, you'd go out and he would be kind of Getting people to recognise him on the street. And I'd be walking on. Oh, let's just get to the restaurant. You know. And um, it was a different different way of being. And th that live tour of Bottom, as, as you say, sort of, again, almost exacerbated that difference. That he had always had this thing, which was that he wanted to be... Well, you say that you sort of were always interested in being an actor rather yeah. than a comedian. The, the comedy had sort of been by accident. Comedy was accidental, yeah. Whereas... He was really interested in being uh, Rick, male, sex god, yeah. you know, or comedy genius kind of thing. Yeah. And that, that got worse and worse, I suppose, as, as the tour went on. It's a complicated thing, because um, the bottom tour was basically a live-action version of the bottom sitcom. So we were the characters of yeah. Eddie and Richie. And uh, it always used to start off really, really well and be big laughs everywhere. and. As it carried on, he would start to lose some of his laughs. The, the, the audience probably wouldn't recognise that he was losing laughs, mm. but he could every 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 actor mm. feels it. You know, you can feel that's 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 getting smaller that laugh there, or well, that one's kind of rubbed out a bit. And uh, and it's because he he would he would stop playing Richie and he would be Rick Mail playing Richie, mm. and uh, there. They're vastly different things, and I think the audience 
The, he's got all his words for the kind of desperate character of Richie mm. and a kind of more confident, sexually um, confident guy is, is, is delivering them and it, it doesn't, doesn't ring, doesn't work mm. as well. Worked, it always worked. Then he'd start cutting stuff because he, you know, he wasn't thinking, oh, I'm not getting a laugh and I'll cut, cut all these bits. And mm. uh, in the end, you just sort of, you're just doing the fights and, and the big woofers, you know. <laughs> and it sort of lost its complexity. I know people don't think bottom is complex, but it, I think it is. Yeah. Um, it was a, you know, a sitcom version of Waiting for Godot is, is what I... It's what we went for, and I think I, I, I'm, I'll still stand by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to bring Waiting to God up at the end, but actually, as you've mentioned it, because you do mention it a lot in the book, and of course you and Rick did the play. Yeah. It's one of those plays, so when I was training at drama school, it's one of those plays that, of course, everyone's aware of. Yeah. But I, I never really kind of understood what the fuss was about. And then I saw a production of it, this incredible, the, the John Calder Company, who are this sort yeah. of co-op. So they all know all the parts, and then yeah. they only know which part they're going to play on the night. Right. They pull them out of the hat. So they know that play backwards. I remember watching it, and I was watching this play thinking, this is very entertaining, this is very funny. And then about halfway through, I was like, oh my God, this is the most profound piece of art I've ever watched. Like, it, the whole meaning of life is in this play. Mm. It re really altered my perception of it completely. Is that part of why you love it too? Or we, is it... I, I, I just think generally people have the wrong impression of Sam Beckett. Yeah. Um, I've, I've sort of read about him as well as read all his stuff and... and performed and that fair few of them and uh, he was a very funny bloke hmm. there's that famous picture of him looking all craggy yeah. and everything you know everyone thinks oh he looks like a serious intellectual but if you read interviews with the people he used to live with in or visit in Paris all the time he was he was hilarious hmm. he used to have them in stitches every night you know this was a funny man hmm. uh, and this is much the same as the, as the as Chekhov yeah, Chekhov is funny. I, yeah. I've seen a Chekhov play in St. Petersburg with Russians doing it, and the audience were in fits of laughter the entire the entire way through. No one's going, oh, how awful, yeah. how dreadful. When when someone does that, the audience laugh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's about finding bleakness funny. Mm. Um, it's about finding despair hilarious, and that, that, that's what we found funny in it. Mm. And. Um, we realised at university that we were different to everyone else because we thought of it as a comedy and everyone else thought it was a tome. You know. <laughs> Too much veneration. Yeah. Not yeah. enjoyment. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, as you say, there, you, you consider yourself to be a, an actor and writer, really, rather than a comedian. The comedy sort of happened by accident. But you've been able to really extend the range of stuff that you've done post-bottom. Yeah. Um, are you excited? I mean, do you continue to be excited about the possibilities there and where, where else it might take you? I, uh, I have a very short attention span <laughs> and, uh, and still have a kind of a berserker's instinct for excitement. And I want to be surprised all the time and I want to have a new experience. And there's nothing better than getting a, a script and them saying, you're going to Bangkok for five months. <laughs> And you're playing a robot, you know. <laughs> I think, well, that sounds, yeah, yeah. I'm in. Yeah. Uh, and then you meet a load of people. Yeah. And uh, you have a very intense kind of five months with them, and then you come home and forget all about them. <laughs> <laughs> and you, 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 and then they say, oh, now no, you're playing a, a sex pest. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, 
and it's it's en endlessly fascinating. <laughs> With international travel. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I can't imagine being one of those long-term actors on, I mean, fair play to them, but those people who do soaps for 25 years, yeah. I can't imagine how boring that must be. And confusing, I would imagine, mentally, yeah. where you're the same character all that yeah. time. Yeah. And the writers are, don't know who the character is yeah. still yeah. after 25 <laughs> years. <laughs> um, we spoke and sort of mentioned that sort of emotional repression that can come as a result of, of being at a boarding school. And if you don't mind, I wanted to sort of alight on a couple of, of moments, yeah. which, you know, obviously you've dealt with in your life. You know, losing your comedy writing partner, you mentioned about how the fun that you had writing together and, and losing him, what was probably quite a difficult time, I think, in your relationship, yeah. where things weren't, you know, were just a little bit tricky. Um, that, that must have been very hard. And going back to what you were saying about the writing, that thing of writing each other's characters, of course, comes from knowing each other yeah. like nobody else. I mean, I think you know, and it was probably it's probably a form of repression that we 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 never said that we loved each other, but yeah. but we did say we loved each other's characters, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And uh, he he loved Eddie, and and I loved Richie, and we used to write each other's characters a lot. Um, I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't put numbers to it, but but an awful lot of Richie was written by me, and he wrote a lot of Eddie. Mm. And uh, it was a kind of a way of expressing love, you know, bizarrely. Because mm. um, they're, they're only extensions of, of ourselves, mm. you know. Well, Rick's is a kind of joke version of himself. He always like, I mean, despite all that preening kind of vanity, he had a kind of way of understanding and making light of that and mm. saying, you know, and knowing that he was an idiot, you know, and uh, kind of blunt, philosophical, violent one is me, and that's part. It's in my, it's in my makeup, you know, somewhere. Somebody who who did tell you that they loved you uh, is Jennifer. Yes. And I love the way that she told you eventually. Yeah. Um, with it written on a fag packet. Yeah. But tell me a bit about meeting her because you said you had that immediate. Recognization, sort of recognizing in each other that forces thing. Yeah. But in terms of sort of the romantic relationship, I think you've hinted that you know you, you kind of fell in love with her immediately. Yeah. But it was you were in different you were in relationships. We were in different time. relationships, and then by the time mine came to its natural end, she'd started one with someone else, and then I'd be with someone else, and you know the kind of overlapping thing. Uh, and it's probably the best thing for us, to be honest, because. Mm. Um, Took about four years to get together, and by then we sort of knew who, who we were, and um, were prepared to take it on. Well, she was prepared to, <laughs> to take you on. <laughs> yeah. Well, because you joke about how, as you say, you come out of boarding school and you're needy, emotionally yeah. needy. Yeah, and don't know how to talk to girls. I remember going on tour, the first comic strip tour, and just sort of sitting next to her. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Not being able to. <laughs> like a loyal pet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it worked. It just took hey, four it years. <laughs> Tried at home. <laughs> um, but obviously, you, you've been together a very long time, and what has it been like, I suppose, to have the support of somebody who's involved in the arts like you are? But you, you have very different careers, don't you? And, yeah. But you obviously well, understand what the other's going through. Different but similar. Mm. 
I mean, we both have created a lot of our own work, as it were. Um, and we're both sort of enjoying a, a period now where we're doing other people's work. And we both enjoy that. Mm. It's quite nice not being in charge. Or it's quite nice just being in charge of your part of it. Yeah. Not having to kind of oversee the entire project. Yeah. Um, I think people would be very disappointed in our life. <laughs> I think people expect it's a kind of sitcom, that, you know, yeah. without the cameras. But, you know, we mostly watch Bargain Hunt and the one show and eat, you know, ready meals off our knees. <laughs> <laughs> and having done Waiting for Godot and War and Peace, I'm wondering what you see as your kind of artistic challenges for the future. Is there anything you've got your eye on? Yeah, I want to be in a returning huge series that does six months a year and then the other six months I want to do really experimental theatre. <laughs> Well, I wish you the best with that, Adrian. It well, sounds like you've got you. a plan. But thank you yeah. for Berserker, as I say, a, a, a very funny but very, very moving read as well. So thank thank you. you. Thank you very much.